Hello, friends. Welcome to another session on Survey of Theology. My name is Stephen Cook, and today we are going to talk about sin. We're going to talk about its character and its universality. Now, the word sin is found throughout Scripture. It is found throughout the Bible, uh, from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And both the Hebrew and Greek share the same basic meaning. So what is that? Well, the Hebrew word kata means to miss the mark. Kata means to miss the mark or to lose the way. And this definition uh, is taken from Halit, which is a Hebrew, uh, Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament. And then we also have the Greek word hamartano, hamartano, which is defined as to miss the mark, err, or do wrong. And that is taken from uh, the Bauerdanker Arndt and Gingrich, a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature. But I've highlighted here the, uh, the, the phrase here, the words, to miss the target or to miss the mark, because the idea is a picture of that of an archer who draws back and is aiming for a target, but it goes off course. It misses the target. Now, for us as believers, the target is God's will. It is God's will. It is that uh, a will that we are shooting for uh, according to that which he has revealed to us, his directives. And so we're shooting for that. But sin is any time we miss that uh, would be a very basic idea of that. In fact, the Hebrew word kata <clears throat> is used in Judges uh, chapter 20, verse 16. It is used of skilled soldiers, in this case, who are said who do not miss their target. And uh, the word miss translates our Hebrew word kata. It's, it's preceded by the Hebrew, uh, uh, Hebrew word lo, which means no or not, so it negates it. But here again, the word is used of skilled soldiers who do not miss their target. It is also used in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 2, of a man who hurries and misses his way, who misses his way. Uh, and also, uh, sometimes the idea of um has the idea of uh of to err and by the way this understanding uh that i'm setting forth here with regard to uh skilled soldiers uh who do not miss their target or a man who hurries and misses his way uh i took that from uh bruce waltke's theological word book of the old testament theological word book of the old testament is where i I got that understanding, and that's on page 277 if you want to chase that down. Now, those are the two basic words uh, used to translate sin, but there's other Hebrew and Greek words uh, related to sin, and this includes like words like evil, raw, wicked, rasha, rebel, mara, transgress, pasha, iniquity, avon, error, shagah, guilt, asham, to go astray, ta'ah, sin, hamartia, bad, kakos. Now we're getting into Greek words here. Sin, hamartia, Greek, kakos. Evil, poneros, ungodly, asabes, guilty, uh, anekos. Unrighteousness, adikia, lawless, onimos. Transgression, parabasis. Ignorance, agnoeo, to go astray, planao. Uh, to trespass, paraptoma, and hypocrisy, hypocrisis. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we find these related words uh, that are connected with the idea of sin. 
so let me move on here. So sin is when we transgress God's law and depart from his intended path. Now, the Apostle John helps us here in 1 John 3, 4. He says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, I, I like the word crime. Crime is a good word, because we understand that in our modern-day vocabulary. So a criminal is one who violates a law, breaks a law. And so we, when we think of crime, crime can be any, a violation of any law. It can be a violation of a tax law. It can be a violation of, um, of a speeding law. Uh, it can be a violation of any law uh, that is set forth uh, uh, um, as directives for us as citizens of the country. But from the divine perspective, God sets forth certain directives. And so again, uh, sin, uh, I like the idea of the word crime. I think that communicates quite well. Now, Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer, and here I'm quoting from major Bible themes, he says, quote, the teaching of Scripture is that sin is any want of conformity to the character of God, whether it be an act, a disposition, or a state, end quote. Now, Chafer here puts the emphasis ultimately upon the character of God. And, and I understand that because God's laws uh, are righteous because they come to us from a righteous God. And so it's not just enough to say that sin is a violation of the law. It's also a violation of the character of God. Okay, so it is any want of conformity to the character of God. And so Dr. Merrill F. Unger, and here I have a quote that is taken from the Unger's Bible Dictionary, the, uh, from Unger's Bible Dictionary, the new Unger's Bible Dictionary. If you don't have that in your library, I do recommend that. That is a very, very good uh, resource to have if you want to chase down the meaning of a word. Uh, and so it's a very good dictionary. And so, uh, according to Unger's Bible Dictionary, he says, quote, The underlying idea of sin is that of law and of a lawgiver. He says the lawgiver is God. Hence, sin is everything in the disposition and purpose and conduct of God's moral creatures that is contrary to the expressed will of God. That is contrary to the expressed will of God. He then uh, closes out, he says, The sinfulness of sin lies in the fact that it is against God, even when the wrong we do is to others or ourselves. End quote. Now, when we think about sin, we must put it under God's permissive will, under his permissive will. And I taught on the subject of knowing and doing the will of God last year. I, have a, I think it's a five-part series on that. But when we think about God's will, we think about his sovereign will, we think about his directive will, we think about his permissive will, we think about his overruling will and his providential will. There's different aspects of the will of God. But when we think about sin, uh, it fits under the category of his permissive will. Anytime we sin, it is because God permits it. Now, God limits our sinful production, and, and he, call, he calls us to limit our, sinful, our sin as well. He never directs us to sin, never. You'll never find that in Scripture. It's never, never, never the will of God that we sin. But when we sin, uh, it would fit under the category of his permissive will, that he permits it. Because God is omniscient, he knows all things. I mean, you go back to the Garden of Eden, 
I use as a good example. You go back to the Garden of Eden, and God uh, created Adam, created Eve, created the environment of the garden, and he gave them directives. Adam had the directive to cultivate and to keep the garden. Uh, he was given the command that he could eat from any tree in the garden. He was given one negative prohibition that he could not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that he ate from it, he would die, he would surely die. God also gave them the directive to name the animals. So God gave him a series of directives. And then we get to Genesis chapter 3. And the first sinner was an angel of the class of cherubim by the name of Lucifer, who led a rebellion in heaven and convinced a third of the angels to follow him in his rebellion. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then his kingdom of darkness that was created at that time was expanded to include the earth at the time of the, of the historic fall of Adam and Eve. And so you get into the garden and you say, okay, well, Satan comes in and he begins to tempt Eve and he's, uh, trying to, he's getting to the both of them, but Eve he views as his entry point. And so he comes in and he begins to question uh, God's will. Then he flat out contradicts God's will. Uh, and, of course, God said, in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Satan says, no, you won't. You won't die. And he says, in fact, God's trying to withhold something from you. He's trying to keep, from, keep you from becoming like him, like God. And so there's this temptation that's put out there. And then Eve reaches out and she takes from the fruit of the tree and she eats and she gives to her husband who is with her and he eats. Uh, and so there is a spiritual death that occurs at that moment and they know it and there is something in their constitution that has changed fundamentally and sin has now become a part of them. They now have fallen natures. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the question arises, did God know that Lucifer was going to come into the garden and tempt the first couple? And the answer to that is yes, uh, because God is omniscient. He knows all things. Okay, well, we say, was God present? Uh, did he know or was he there? Could he have stopped it? And the answer to that is yes, because we know that God is omnipresent. He's equal and fully everywhere all the time. And we know that God is all-powerful, that he is able to accomplish all that he desires. So he was aware, he was present, he was able. Did he stop it? And the answer to that is no. He did allow that to happen. So we put that under the category of what theologians call his permissive will, that he permitted this to happen. Because what's the point of giving uh, creatures intellect and volition if you're going to shut that down uh, at every opportunity or on occasions where it may be contrary to his directive will? because he gave them directives uh, with regard to how they were to function uh, in the garden. And so God, being a perfect gentleman, does not force people to obey him, does not force people to follow his directives. Now, there's consequences on the tail end of that, and there were consequences for Adam and Eve, as well as the rest of the human race. And this is another point. I don't know that I brought it up in these notes here. But sin doesn't just affect us. Sin affects other people. It touches other people. And we find examples throughout this, of this throughout the Scripture. I mean, I could draw from just very quickly off the top of my head. Jonah, who disobeys the Lord and flees from God's directive goes down, gets on a ship, heads out, away from God, 
uh, from the place that God called him to go. And God then sends a storm upon the sea so that the ship is about to break up. And so Jonah's sinful behavior didn't just affect him, it affected other people. In fact, Jonah even makes the comment, I think it's in Jonah 1.13, could be off on that, you might have to chase that down. But Jonah even makes the comment, he says, I know that this great storm has come upon you because of me. Think of that. He knew that. Now, I don't think he cared. I think he was, uh, I think he was callous about the whole matter. But he says he he knew it. He said, "I know that this great storm has come upon you because of me, because actions have consequences, not just for self but for other people." Uh, and this is why sin is so dangerous. But on the flip side of that, there is also blessing, blessing that comes into the lives of other people when we are obedient, when we are walking with the Lord, when we are doing things that we should do. And I'll go back to Jonah, uh, because after Jonah had uh, uh, suffered some divine discipline, and you see that in the storm, you see that in the great fish, and uh, and so Jonah suffered, and he humbled, he was humbled, and he eventually goes to do the will of God. So he goes, excuse me, to Nineveh, to the capital city of Assyria, and he goes and he preaches. So he's obedient to the Lord. Hundreds of thousands of people came to faith in God. In fact, in Jonah 3, 5, it says that they believed in God. They believed in God. There's faith. And so they come to have forgiveness of sins and eternal life, and God spares them from the judgment that he is about to bring upon them because of their wickedness. And so you have many, many, many people who are in heaven today because of the obedience of one believer. And so this communicates the idea of cursing by association and blessing by by association. Cursing, if the believer is outside of the will of God, in defiance and rebellion, and God brings discipline. And blessing, when the believer is in the will of God. And uh, and other people were blessed as a result of Jonah's obedience. So we see these issues where, where it has consequences. So again, going back to our notes here, God permits sin. He permits sin. And so God could have stopped the sin of Adam and Eve in the, in the garden, uh, but he didn't, and therefore he permitted it. And that's still true today. Any time that we commit sin, it falls under God's permissive will. So God permits sin, but is never the author of it. Sin is the expression of a creaturely will that is set against God. It is the expression of a creaturely will set against God. Now, the sin that we commit may be mental, verbal, or physical. And you think of a mental attitude sins. You think of the sin of fear, or worry, or doubt, or anger, or lust, or hatred. I mean, and, and you can commit uh, mental adultery. You can commit mental murder. Uh, you, can, uh, you can commit all sorts of mental attitude sins. Verbal sins, gossip, lying, uh, you know, which people engage in gossip and character assassination. I mean, you can commit all sorts of verbal sins. I mean, James has a whole section in his little epistle about the about the sinfulness of the tongue and the damage that the tongue can do. Uh, Because with it, we can bless or we can curse. And then there's physical sins, sins of the the body. Now, Now, sin may be private or public. It may be private or public. It may impact one person or it may impact many. Uh, And it may come with short or lasting results. Short or lasting results. 
Now below are biblical examples of sin. Biblical examples of sin. Now the first one here that I'm going to reference is Lucifer. Lucifer. And he was created, uh, as Ezekiel 28 tells us, that he, that he had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and beauty. Uh, and this, he was very magnificent creature, by the way, on the day that you were created. Uh, he talks about these, uh, these stones that were part of his attire that added to his beauty. And he's described uh, the first here of two times as the anointed cherub. Cherub is a class of angels known as cherubim. There's other classes of angels. You have uh, archangels. You know, Michael is an archangel. You have seraphim, like those described in uh, Isaiah chapter 6. But here he is of the class of angels known as cherubs. And he was on the holy mountain of God. He walked in the midst of the stones of fire. And then in Ezekiel 28:15, he says, You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Now, let me pause for just a moment here. Sin is always, uh, always comes from uh, willful creatures. It is, it is born out of the volition. It is the product of willful creatures who set their will against the will of God. But it, it comes from the source of our volition. We produce it. And we must distinguish between temptation and sin. Temptation is the enticement to sin. But temptation is not sin. Remember in Hebrews 4.15, it says that Jesus was tempted in all ways like we are, yet without sin. He was tempted in all ways like we are, yet without sin. And so temptation is the enticement and the opportunity to sin. But it becomes sin when we actually say yes to it. And from the source of our volition, we yield to that temptation and we then produce it. And so uh, we can have that. And by the way, for us as 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 human beings born in the line of Adam, we are sinners, uh, uh, we have a sinful nature, and so temptation can come externally, it can come from outside of us, that we can be tempted from an external source, but we can be tempted from an internal source. I mean, I can, in a place of solitude without any external temptation, have all sorts of temptations uh, for mental attitude sins, uh, to commit adultery, mental murder, uh, worry, doubt, fear. Uh, I mean, I can get into all sorts of mental attitude sins, and it can uh, it can really cause me a lot of damage. So again, uh, sin may be uh, it may be private or public. It may impact one or many with short or lasting results. And so here we see Lucifer, who was perfect uh, from the day he was created until unrighteousness was found in you. So it it comes from the source of one's volition. That's the point I'm getting at. It comes from the source of one's volition. He goes on, he says, by the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. And there's our word. And you sinned. So he manufactured sin and he then uh, led a rebellion. He tempted or enticed other angels to sin with his sin and his sin was that he wanted to be like God. He thought he could be like God. In fact, over in Isaiah 14, we have uh, the five I will statements. And he says, but you said in your heart. So this apparently was what was going on within Satan at the time of his, uh, at the time of his fall. 
And he said, I will ascend. And notice the I. It's, 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 it's about himself. He says, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the, amount, uh, on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. I will make myself like the most high. And that was the enticement that he also brought to, uh, to Eve and to Adam, was that they would be like God. And so we see here where Lucifer himself uh, commits sin. He's, he's said to have sinned. And then we have uh, here in this next section, Adam and, Adam and Eve uh, disobeyed the command not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan comes in, and he comes in with, a, with an enticement. And, of course, Eve misrepresents the will of God because uh, God had said, you shall not eat from it, and Eve added, or touch it. And uh, Satan at that point moves in. He says, uh, and the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. And so just flat out contradicts God altogether. And then in verse 5, he says, For God knows it, that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so that then becomes the enticement. So we know that Adam and Eve disobeyed the command not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we see sin here being produced. Here's an interesting one. And this has to do with Lot's daughters who got him drunk and had sex with him. So this first case here of incest in the Bible has to do with two daughters who uh, sexually molest their father. And there's sinful thoughts going on here. And over in Genesis 19, uh, and this is after Sodom has been destroyed and Lot has fled to this little town called Zoar. It says, And Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains, and his two daughters with him, for he was afraid. So you got some mental attitude sin going on here. For he was afraid to stay in Zoar, and he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. Then the firstborn said to the younger, so here's, here's the, the dialogue or the discourse, Our father is old, and there is not a man on the earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. So here's the plan. They said, uh, come, let us make our father drink wine and let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father and he did not know when she lay down or when he arose. So he's pretty, pretty inebriated here. On the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine uh, tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when he arose. Now we have a very important uh, theological word associated with this kind of activity, and it's the word yuck. <laughs> At least that's a word that I think of when I come to passages like this, just yuck. Uh, and yet there it is. Uh, sin is, uh, is nasty business. 
here's what's fascinating to me about this, and this is where the sovereignty of God and the grace of God can shine through even in such sinful activities. And so it says in verse 36 that thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. Follow me on this. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. And he is the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. And he is the father of the son of Ammon to this day. So you have these two people groups. And this is the origin of both the Moabites and the Ammonites. Now, both of these people groups are going to be problematic for Israel later on, especially when they come out of captivity and are moving, migrating up into the north, uh, into the region uh, just north and uh, east of the Jordan River before they cross over into the land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua. Um, So you do see them uh, in the future in that regard. What's interesting is we have a book in the Old Testament, it's a small book, and it's called Ruth, and it follows the book of Judges, and it occurs during the time of the period of the Judges. And Ruth is known as Ruth the Moabitess. Ruth the Moabitess. And this is where it's fascinating to me, because Ruth is just an outstanding woman. Just absolutely incredible. A woman of virtue and excellence and honor. In fact, she's called Eshet Chayil. She's called a woman of excellence. And it could be that she may, that Ruth may actually be the the role model or the template for the Proverbs 31 woman, uh, who was also also called Eshet Chayil, who was also called a woman of excellence. And so that's possible. What's interesting is that Ruth uh, is such an excellent woman, and she winds up marrying a man by the name of Boaz, who is also an excellent man. The book of Ruth is a, is, it's a wonderful love story, <laughs> and uh, it's a very fascinating book, and, uh, and I really enjoy the book of Ruth. But Ruth, Boaz and Ruth, uh, through their descendants comes King David, and through that line ultimately comes Messiah. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that just fascinating? So here, even this sinful action, uh, God can can use one of the descendants of the Moabites to, to have this wonderful woman named Ruth, and through her, David, and ultimately, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, that's the sovereignty, the grace, and just the brilliance, brilliance of our God. Just fascinating stuff. We also have another example of sin in which Aaron led the Israelites to worship an idol. In which Aaron, who is a believer, by the way, he was a believer. He was saved before, during, and after uh, the whole uh, Operation Golden Calf uh, event happened. In Exodus chapter 32, Moses is up on Mount Sinai. He's uh, conversing with God and he's receiving the law. And the people down below uh, make this assumption that Moses is gone, and so they want to appoint Mo- or Aaron as the new leader, and they want him to construct an idol that they can worship. And so in Exodus 32, 1, it says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come make us a god 
who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So the assumption is he's gone, he's not coming back. Aaron, who is going to be the high priest in Israel and whose sons will function as future high priests in Israel, uh, he may have been a great priest and a high priest, but he's a bad leader. <laughs> Poor Aaron. I just, I just, um, I get, I get a little um, uh, concerned about Aaron here. So it says, Aaron said to them, "Tear off the gold rings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me." Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Wrong. It's not, but that's what they're saying. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Aaron, buddy, what are you doing? You know, they're going to celebrate this thing and they're going to call this idol Yahweh because that's what the word uh, shall be a feast to the Lord. And you notice that Lord there is all in caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is a translation in the NASB of the name of God, the proper name of God, Yahweh. And so that's what we have here. And so Aaron is now assigning the name of the Lord to this idol. And I just think, oh my... Uh, So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and to rose up uh, and rose up to play. And there could be some sexual connotation here in that latter phrase that they rose up to play. But here we see Aaron leading the Israelites to worship an idol. Now, God has a conversation with Moses and Moses has to come down and he has to put a stop to all this nonsense. Uh, because Moses is a strong leader, and in this situation, you need a strong leader. But we see the sin of where Aaron led the Israelites to worship uh, an idol. Well, Moses himself had sin. He was not a perfect man. And we see in Numbers chapter 20, uh, verses 8 through 12, where the Lord uh, takes uh, Moses, and he says, Take your rod and your brother Aaron... Uh, assemble the congregation, and he tells him to speak to the rock. Speak to the rock is the directive that the Lord gives. Speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water from them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beast drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord just as he had commanded him. So far, so good. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, now Moses here expresses what's going on in his mind. He's a little frustrated with these people. Uh, And so it says, listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water uh, for you out of the rock? Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock, not once, but twice. And he struck the rock. Now, the grace of God is such that the water still came forth, And water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beast drank. Uh, So God still produces for them. He still provides for them. This is called logistical grace. Logistical grace, because he's providing to meet their needs. But there's consequences. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. 
And so Moses is going to wander around in the wilderness uh, for the 40 years until eventually you get to uh, the, the, that, that generation has to die off, those who were uh, upwards of 20 years of age. So those who were 20 and younger got spared. They would go into the land, plus newborns would grow up, and they would go into the land under the leadership of Joshua. But when you get to the book of Deuteronomy, uh, the fifth book in the Pentateuch, uh, the five books that were written by Moses, uh, you have uh, roughly the time is about 1405 B.C., and uh, uh, this is Moses' farewell address, the book of Deuteronomy. And it's to the second generation, well, to the younger generation and the second generation uh, of those who came out of Egypt. And so uh, it's his farewell address, but Moses is going to die. He is not going to go into the land. And in the book of Deuteronomy, he actually asked the Lord if he can, and the Lord tells him, he says, look, I'm not going to let you in, paraphrase here, I'm not going to let you in, don't ask me again. So Moses has, as a consequence, is not going to get into the land. He's not going to get into the land. And so Moses is going to die. He's going to see the land, but Joshua, his successor, is going to be the one who takes them in. So again, consequences for actions. So even among godly leaders... And, of course, Moses wrote scripture. Uh, there is still sin. There is still sin. Now, we see where De uh, Samson slept with prostitutes. Uh, apparently, he had a problem with the ladies. And this is a judge. And he judged uh, the nation of Israel for 20 years. He judged the nation of Israel for 20 years. And he was used by the Lord. Now, Samson had a problem. He had a problem, and uh, on several occasions we see where he slept uh, with prostitutes. And again, this is this is just something that is a is a possibility for any believer to commit. David had an affair with Bathsheba, and then conspired to have her husband Uriah murdered. And by the way, I've got a footnote in there that both adultery and murder were punishable by death under the Mosaic Law. They were punishable by death under the Mosaic Law. And what's interesting is that David humbled himself, and he admitted his sin. He confessed his sin. Now, there were consequences, but he received a reduced sentence, uh, and this by God himself. In fact, when David confessed his sin, uh, admitting that he is the guilty man, Nathan, the prophet, who was sent by the Lord, immediately tells David, you shall not die. Now that's significant because under the Mosaic law, adultery and murder, again, were both punishable by death. But because David humbled himself, God gave him a reduced sentence. Gave him a reduced sentence. We see another example of a believer who committed sin, where Solomon worshipped idols. Now, that wasn't his only sin. He had others. But Solomon was a believer. He led the nation. God spoke to him on two occasions. God gave him wisdom. God blessed him. And Solomon served as a, as a good leader, as a good king for a while, um, for most of his life, I, I would think. And he was used by the Lord to build the temple, uh, which occurred over seven years. So he built the temple known as the Solomonic Temple. And he wrote three books of the Bible. He, he wrote Song of Solomon. He wrote most of Proverbs, and he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. So he's given us scripture. We're talking about a true believer here. And yet the final word on Solomon is that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he turned away and he worshipped idols. Uh, 
But it starts off with here uh, with him loving many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. So he practiced polygamy. Uh, he practiced polygamy, which was forbidden for the kings of Israel uh, in Deuteronomy seventeen seventeen. It was forbidden specifically for the kings of Israel. Uh, under the Mosaic law, polygamy for uh, the rest of the nation was permitted but not promoted. It was permitted but not promoted, just like divorce. Divorce was permitted but not promoted among uh, the nation of Israel. And so you can read about that as well. But Solomon here not only committed polygamy, but he also married outside the faith. Uh, The women that he married were foreign women who worshipped pagan gods. David practiced polygamy. We know that David had at least eight wives by name and others and concubines. So David uh, had a problem with polygamy too. The scripture is very clear on that. But apparently, David never married outside of the faith. He married uh, Jewish women who were within the community of the faith, within the covenant community. And so, uh, it's interesting that David's uh, practice of polygamy is never mentioned. It's never mentioned. Now, he has his sins. He had his sins. He led the census, uh, which caused problems, and he came under divine discipline for that. And, uh, of course, we know the affair with... uh, Uh, Bathsheba and the murderer of her husband Uriah, and his practice of polygamy. These are all sins, but his polygamy is never mentioned, interestingly enough. It is mentioned uh, by, uh, with regard to Solomon, but that's because it led him to, I would argue, the more egregious sin of idolatry. And, And Solomon was an idolater by the end of his life. And so when you get down into verse 3, it says, uh, and, he ha- and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. Well, that's a thousand. And that, that didn't happen at one mass wedding. It's not like all these women gathered out there and Solomon just in one day just said, okay, you know, you're my wives. This went on over time. And so this was an ongoing sin. And his wives turned his heart away, his heart away from God. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away uh, after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. And then it says here, For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. And Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Not only did he go after these idols and worship them, but he also built places of worship for others to come. Solomon, at this point, is a bad leader. He's leading others into sin. That's bad. Bad, bad, bad. So Solomon built the high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon, uh, which became uh, one of the chief idols that was used when they sacrificed their children. Horrible, horrible. Solomon was the one that introduced this into Israel. And so later on, when they caused their sons and daughters, when kings and people in Israel at, at future times from Solomon caused their sons to pass through the fire, is the phrase that is is the phrase that is used. They're sacrificing their children, and Solomon is the one that sets up. It starts this and sets up these places of worship. Now others added to it, 
and then it goes on, thus he also did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So Solomon accommodated all of these uh, foreign wives with regard to their paganism, with regard to their idolatry. So we see where Solomon worshipped idols. By the way, the final word on Solomon that we have is that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And as far as we know, he never turned back. Solomon ended his days worshipping idols. And it goes to show that having wisdom is no guarantee that you will live by it. Having wisdom is no guarantee that you will live by it. Now, Solomon is a believer. He's in heaven today. Uh, He came under divine discipline in time. And he also, I believe, forfeited future rewards because he turned away from the Lord. But nonetheless, uh, Solomon uh, did this evil thing. We see in Matthew 16 where Peter, a believer, tries to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. He tries to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. In Matthew 16, 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Now, the word must here translates the Greek word day, D-E-I, day. And I take it here to be a word that communicates the idea of divine necessity. Divine necessity, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. Now, Peter, when he hears this news, It shocks him, and he doesn't like it. He doesn't like it. And so we have this fascinating situation here where Peter, Peter took him, that's Jesus, the Son of God, the theanthropic person, the God-man. Peter takes him, Jesus, aside and began to rebuke him. Think of it. Peter's going to rebuke the Lord? Oh, my. And here's what he says. He says, God forbid it, Lord. Now, Lord here is a synonym for deity. So he might as well be saying, God forbid it, God. This shall never happen to you. (laughs) This shall never happen to you. Now, Peter, at this moment, becomes an enemy of the cross. He becomes an enemy of the cross. And if Peter had had his way, Jesus would have never gone to the cross and died, and we would all be damned, including Peter. And, uh, and Jesus turns around and Jesus rebukes him. But he said, but he turned and said to Peter, and I think here he ultimately knows the satanic uh, impetus or drive behind Peter's thoughts and actions. And so he says to me, get behind me, Satan. Because he understands what is going on in the invisible realm behind Peter. Peter, at this point, is just the mouthpiece of Satan. But I think he's speaking to both. I think he's speaking to Peter and to Satan. And he says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. So again, we see here where Peter uh, tries to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. Of course, we have the famous example with Peter denying the Lord three times. Peter denying the Lord three times. Uh, And this at the time when Jesus was undergoing his trials. What's interesting is you get down into Matthew uh, 26, 74. It says, then he began to curse and swear. <laughs> so on the third occasion here, he says, then he began to curse and swear and said, I do not know the man. And of course, after that third time, immediately the rooster crowed. 
But here we have Peter, a believer who denies the Lord not once, not twice, but three times. Now, one could argue that any time we sin, we are denying the Lord because we are setting our will against the will of God and we are choosing to follow sin rather than to follow Jesus. Another example of sin is uh, found in the uh, letter to the church at Corinth. These are believers. In fact, over in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, these are called saints. Saints. Now, the Catholic Church has absolutely butchered the idea of saints. They've created this super class of super spiritual uh, believers. Uh, and that's just nonsense. That's just, that's just bunk. That's what that is. All Christians are saints. All Christians are saints. In fact, if you look at the word saint uh, and its usage throughout the New Testament, it's just a synonym for a believer. It's just a synonym for a believer. I am Saint Steve. I have other friends who come to my Bible study, Saint Stephanie, Saint Dan, Saint Nancy, Saint Marcus, uh, other people who come in. So we have other saints that come in. Now, do saints sin? Yes. Yes. And so when we look at the Christians at Corinth, who are saints, they are saints, uh, Paul says of them, he says that there are quarrels among them. Do believers ever quarrel? Do they ever fight with each other? Of course they do. Uh, they were practicing, they were guilty of jealousy and strife. Now, Paul here calls them infants in Christ. He's calling them babies because they're immature. They haven't grown up in their walk with the Lord. But he says in verse 3, for you, you Christians, you believers who are going to heaven, there is jealousy and strife among you. Can believers uh, have jealousy and strife, mental attitude, and uh, the acts of strife? Can they, can they have that? Yes. Yes, they can. We also see where you even have one guy in the church who was uh, practicing fornication. Uh, Paul writes, he says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Well, that's uh, a sexual uh, incest. And of course, you think of the example I mentioned earlier with Lot and his two daughters, but here you have this case of immorality. You even have people who are engaging, who are drunk when they come together to have a meal. Paul says, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, having disregard, just gobbling up all the food and not even being concerned about the, the poor believers who are getting off work and showing up and, and hoping for a meal and there's nothing there because these other people show up and they gobble, 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 gobble all the food down. And so he says each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry. Complete disregard or consideration for the poor believers. And another is drunk. Think of it. I mean, what is being described here might be more indicative of what you'd find at a bar, not a local church. But that's what you have. And again, so you have these uh, sinful behaviors. Now, among unbelievers, we expect sin. But here I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on believers just to demonstrate not only uh, the kinds of sin, but the reality of sin that exists among believers. And of course we know that the Apostle John twice worshipped an angel and was rebuked for it. That occurs in Revelation 19.10 and then in Revelation chapter 22 verse 8. <clears throat> and so he twice bows down and worships the angel. And he twice gets rebuked for it. And the angel tells him on both occasions, stop it, don't do that, John. 
worship God. I'm a fellow servant of yours, so we're on the same team. You work in the human realm, I work in the angelic realm, but uh, we're collaborating here. Uh, but don't worship me, I'm a creature, worship God. Now the above list here is just a sampling. It's just a sampling. Uh, you could find many other examples, but again, this is a survey of theology, and I say that probably more for me than you, uh, just to remind uh, me that this is a survey. We're touching on this slightly. We're just introducing things. So the above list is a sampling of sins in the Bible. Biblically, every person, every person, every person, let me say it again, every person is a sinner in God's sight. Every person is a sinner in God's sight. Jesus is the single exception. Uh, Jesus, because of his divine nature, remember, in the beginning was the Word, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, and we beheld his glory, glory is of the only begotten, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Colossians 2, 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells. I've demonstrated this before. And because of his divine nature and the virgin conception, and because of the virgin conception, I think of Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, behold, a virgin. Now the word virgin here translates the Hebrew word alma, which in many cases refers to a young girl of marriageable age. It's translated as a virgin here because when you get into the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament and the New Testament in Matthew, when Matthew cites this passage, he uses the Greek word parthenos, parthenos, which in the Greek means only a virgin. That, that's what the word means. It clearly, without exception, means a virgin, and so that's why it's translated this way. But the virgin will be with child and bear a son, because she's Christotokos, she's the bearer of the humanity of Jesus, and she will call his name Emmanuel, and Emmanuel means God with us. And so this is a reference to the hypostatic union, the time when God the Son came into the world, took upon himself humanity. He's undiminished deity combined together forever with perfect humanity. And he is the only person ever born without sin, because the rest of us are born with sin natures. And the sin nature is the proclivity to sin. Now, the sin nature can go in different directions. It can go in one of two general directions. It can go in the direction of religion and pseudo-spirituality and pseudo-morality that is predicated on nothing more than one's imagination or one's own, own arbitrary uh, set of uh, morals and standards. And you find people that are religious, and you can go into areas of of uh, immorality or licentiousness. And by the way, when you think of Jesus dealing with sinners, he dealt with two classes. He dealt with the moral sinners, the religious types, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, and then he dealt with the immoral sinners, uh, those who were prostitutes and, and sinners and tax collectors and so on. And really the problem he had with the, the group the most was the religious sinners because they didn't see their need for a savior. The other group, Jesus comes along and says, you're sinners. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's correct. And I've worked in prison ministry for about 15, 16 years now. I've lost track of time. But when I go in and I talk about sin, they're like, yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, you do find some religious uh, 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 quacks in there, but uh, for the most part, they're, they're pretty uh, 
uh, pretty open uh, to admit their sinfulness and to recognize it. But the sin nature goes in one of two directions. And so you can have people who can reject Jesus Christ as Savior or worship a false Jesus, and you see this with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, very religious, very religious, uh, but it's not true worship. It's not the true. It's not a relationship with the true God through the true Christ. Uh, it's a pseudo. It's a it's a replacement. It's a god of their own imagination that they have conjured up here. So you see where it goes in one of two directions. Uh, but the reality is is that every person is a sinner in God's sight. Now Jesus is the only exception uh, because he is born without sin. He's born without a sin nature, so he has no proclivity to sin. No internal temptation that like what we deal with, and by the way, the sin nature becomes pretty obvious at a young age, because as a child grows, you don't have to teach that child to commit sin. That's the default setting: uh, selfishness, and uh, and uh, disregard for others, and uh, manipulation, and a child will quickly learn to lie. And so you don't have to teach a child to do wrong. That's the default setting. <laughs> you have to teach the child to do right. So again, we are born with a sin nature. But Jesus is the only person ever born without sin and who committed no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he knew no sin. Hebrews 4.15 says that he is without sin. 1 Peter 1.22 says he committed no sin. 1 John 3.5 says that in him there is no sin. Now, we are said to be sinners in three ways. You see, it hits us on three fronts. First of all, we are said to be sinners in Adam. Because as goes Adam, so goes the human race. And so we are born in the line of Adam, and therefore we are born into a slave market of sin. We are born into Satan's kingdom of darkness, into the domain of darkness. Acts 26 calls it the, uh, the dominion of, of, of Satan. And Colossians 1.13 makes it clear that at the moment of faith in Christ, we are transferred from the domain of darkness, that is Satan's kingdom, that we're all born into naturally. All humanity is born into this world, born in sin, born in Adam's, uh, excuse me, Satan's domain of darkness. <clears throat> and so we're born into that. And so Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man, that's Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, separation from God and physical death as well, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Well, when did we all sin? We all sinned when Adam sinned, because as goes Adam, so goes the human race. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. You have the first Adam and the last Adam. The first Adam, for since by a man, that's Adam, came death, by a man, that's Jesus, came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now we are born physically into this world in Adam. It is by a choice of faith in Christ that we are transferred out of that kingdom into the kingdom of the beloved Son. And uh, by the way, it's almost as though Paul pictures two, two men standing before God, that you have this line of Adam and you have this line of Christ. And which line you are in determines your eternal destiny. But we are sinners in Adam. We are sinners by nature. We are sinners by nature. Again, it is our, our natural proclivity to be sinful. And, and by the way, even at salvation, the sin nature is not removed. Its power to control is crippled. 
and so we are separated from its power. We don't have to sin. But the temptation, uh, until we learn God's word and learn to walk in the spirit, uh, that will still predominate by and large. So Romans seven eighteen, I do not, for Paul says, for I, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. And this he's talking as a believer that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I for the good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Now this is the noun hamartia, and when we talk about a noun, we talk about a person, place, or thing. So here he's talking about the sin thing which dwells in me. Paul then says in verse 21, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Did you catch that? I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. So we have two natures. We have our uh, Adamic, sinful nature that came to us via the Father, our, our human father, because the sin nature is passed on from, from the father to the, to the child, boy or girl. Um, and we also have our new nature, which comes to us at the moment of faith in Christ. Our new nature, which comes to us at the moment of faith in Christ. So we have these two natures that are at war with each other. And we'll talk about this even more when I get into talking about spirituality at a, at a future time in our series. In Galatians 5.17, Paul says, For the flesh, and again talking to believers, sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. So there's not like a third option. You're either walking in the spirit or you're walking in the flesh. And so we see this. Now, the Bible also sometimes calls this the old self. The old self. Uh, palaios anthropos. Palaios anthropos. The old self. Talking about the old nature, which is still there. But as believers, we are told to lay aside the old self. In other words, don't operate by the values and the temptations and the pressures of that sinful nature which are yours all your life until you leave this world by death or by rapture, that will, be, that will be our state, that we deal with this. So we are sinners in Adam, we are sinners by nature, and we're sinners by choice. 1 Kings 8.46, it says, When they sin against you. And then parenthetically it says, For there is no man who does not sin. Did you catch that? There is no man who does not sin. I don't have it in here, but Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, There is not a righteous man on the earth who continually does good and who never sins. There is not a righteous man, a believer, upon the earth who continually does good and who never sins. Uh, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from sin? The answer, no one. In Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 23, uh, Paul, oh my, <laughs> Uh, you want to talk about a very unflattering view of humanity? Uh, read through that sometime. In uh, Romans 3, 9 through 23, he just, boy, he just goes on about the state of man. He says, there is none righteous. There is none righteous. No, not even one. And then he gets down into verse 23, and he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we are sinners in Adam, sinners by nature, and sinners by choice. And sin separates us from God. It separates us from God and renders us helpless to merit God's approval. 
We are, we are helpless to solve the sin problem and to save ourselves. Romans 5, 6 through 10 says, for, and here I'm reading from the NASB, the 1995 update, which is my preferred translation. For while we were still helpless, and that's what we are, because as sinners born into the slave market of sin, we are helpless to save ourselves. We cannot pay the redemption price. We cannot liberate ourselves uh, from this prison that we are in. But while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And for there translates that preposition, huper, which means he died as our substitute. He died in our place. Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. You see, that's the wonderful good news of it. We didn't ask for it. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. But while we were helpless, ungodly sinners, that's when Christ came and died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You see, for the believer, the issue is faith in Christ. And at the moment of faith in Christ, at the moment that we turn to Christ, because we are helpless to save ourselves, please understand this, sin renders us helpless. We can do nothing to save ourselves. Absolutely nothing. But Christ has accomplished what we cannot. He lived the perfectly righteous life that God expects. And he went to the cross and he died a death he did not deserve. And he went willingly. In John 10, it says, he says, uh, I lay down my life. And he says, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down. And so Jesus willingly went to the cross. He struggled. He knew the pain. You can see that in the Garden of Gethsemane. In his humanity, he struggled. But he went. And unlike Adam and Eve, who said, not thy will, but my will be done, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's in a garden too, by the way, when you look at the two garden settings, in the Garden of Eden, he says, not my will, but thy will be done. And so Christ, as the last Adam, was able to accomplish what the first Adam failed to do. And he did it for us. He did it in our place. He went to the cross as an innocent man, as a righteous man. And he bore our sin upon the cross. Uh, Peter tells us that, that in his own body, he bore our sin. And he died for us. 2 Peter 3.18 tells us, I think it's 2 Peter 3.18, that he died for us, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And so he died for us. The, The person who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So when we come with the empty hands of faith, because we bring nothing, nothing, we come with the empty hands of faith and we trust in Christ and Christ alone. And at the moment of faith in Christ, trusting in him, trusting him in his word, believing that he died for us, was buried and raised again on the third day and was seen by many, when we, when we trust in him and what he did for us at the cross, at that moment, we are forgiven our sins, Ephesians 1, 7. We are given eternal life, John 10, 28. We are given the gift of righteousness. We are given the gift of righteousness, Romans 5, 17. Philippians 3, 9 makes clear. 
And so God then rescues us in Colossians 1.13. We are transferred from the uh, dominion of Satan, from the domain of darkness, into the kingdom of the beloved Son. And we are now the adopted children of God, the adopted children of God. We are children of the living God, brothers and sisters to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Oh, to be rescued and to be adopted into the family of God is just amazing. Amazing. God is so good. He is so good. And to him be the glory. Oh, to him be the glory. Well, that's going to conclude out our section here on sin, its character and universality. Uh, So hopefully uh, we understand sin a little bit better, uh, having covered this material. Uh, And next time we pick up, we will jump into salvation. (laughs) Uh, And I suspect it will probably be difficult for me to uh, keep my emotion in check, uh, teaching through this uh, upcoming doctrine. But that is what we will cover next time. So I thank you very much, and I wish you a blessed day.